0: I'm Dr. Jay Anders and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everyone to the first episode and podcast of Tell Me Where It Hurts. I'm Dr. Jay Anders and I have been in the healthcare IT community for the last 20 years. Before that, um, I practicing internist in a very large multi-specialty group practice, trenches doctor in ERs, plus a few other things like a medical director of a health plan, medical director and president of a clinic. So I have pretty good experience across the board when it comes to healthcare and how it's administrated and healthcare IT for the last 15, 18 years. What we're trying to accomplish here is have a, a forum where we'll have guests that can discuss some of the issues and some of the answers that healthcare IT approaches and poses to us. And hopefully we can all learn from one another and have a forum that we can discuss these things back and forth. In the future, we're going to have guests from the national stage, such as the healthcare part of the White House and HHS, as well as industry leaders and. even even trenches, people in the trenches, such as physicians actually practicing and using these systems and where they see the problems and issues are. So today we have our first guest, and she's quite famous for anybody who reads HisTalk. I'd like to introduce her. She's Dr. Jane, the anonymous CMIO blogger and with HisTalk. Jane began her informatics career at a large health system that was transitioning into electronic health world of EHRs. Most recently, she's held key informatics roles for several large health systems while keeping her clinical skills sharp in the emergency room and urgent care settings. Welcome, Dr. Jane. So how are you doing through the COVID pandemic?
1: Well, doing well. You know, each day that you spend vertical is a good day. Um, and I really want to thank you for letting me come on the show today. I'm excited to be here and excited to be part of a, a uh, new tradition for MediComp. Well, thanks,
0: thanks for being here. I really am looking forward to our conversation. We've known each other for quite some time and we're both kind of been in this industry long enough to have all the bruises and bumps and sores that it creates as you go through it. So for the last 10 years, where do you think this industry has come and how is it broken and how does it translate into the doctor's day-to-day practice?
1: So I think as far as the evolution of the industry over the last decade, that's been really interesting. And and I just kind of had a little bit of a milestone uh, this year because I, I this is my I just completed my 10th year writing for his talk. And, you know, every morning when my cell phone pops up with, you know, my memories of the day and I've been seeing over the last few weeks, all these different hymns events and things that we would normally be doing this time of year. And, you know, it, it was really interesting to think how far we've come from uh, the initial days when I first started in healthcare IT, to uh, you know, we were on the bleeding edge. You know, we were really trying to transform healthcare. And then we had this brief moment during the the rise of meaningful use where all of a sudden we had healthcare IT rock stars. You know, the doctor Mostashari's and Jonathan Bush and you know all these different folks that were truly notable in healthcare, um, and people were really into that. And and then things kind of settled down. And and you know healthcare became, or healthcare IT became ubiquitous. Everybody's got it. We all are just kind of dealing with it now. It doesn't seem like there's anything new and exciting and fresh. And then here comes a global pandemic. And I think that's been really interesting as far as spurring some new developments and some different technologies that maybe physicians and clinicians were not used to seeing. So the whole idea that we have technology behind running, you know, a drive-through testing center where, you know, patients are doing everything on their phone in the car while they're in line. And what we're doing now with vaccination Um, I really think it's permeated all of healthcare, but I think there's still so much opportunity for where technology can go and where it can take us. There's a a whole untapped realm of things that could make our lives easier. But right now, I think there's still a lot of us that see it as a burden. And part of that is due to systems that don't really support us, or maybe organizations that don't really support us. Um, But I really think there's a tremendous amount of potential. I'm excited about some of the things that I'm seeing. Um, I'm excited to see what people have to show if we ever get back to an in-person hymns. You know, we definitely miss kind of the craziness of the exhibit hall. You know, that that's always good for some shoe watching and uh, other things that we used to traditionally do there. But I, I think the big thing to remember is that, that nothing will be the same going forward. You know, we're, we're not going to get back to where we were. It's going to be a different market. And I think people are savvier. You know, people are savvier about what technology they bring into their practices. They're not doing it just because it's the cool thing to do or because, you know, in the case of the United States, the government is mandating it, you know, they're going to do things because it's going to meet a patient need or meet a business need.
0: Well, interestingly, you say that because there's a couple of things that people talk about all the time. And, you know, one is usability issues for clinicians and these systems actually making EMRs from a task to a tool that you can actually use. And it's, it's been one of those things that I've seen bandied back and forth actually quite a bit. So what's your take on usability and where that's going to go? And what I mean by that is we've got very large vendors in this industry who have become you know, the standard out there, but yet providers really aren't getting the support they need to actually use the systems that they're being given. And there's this whole add-on, upgrade, bolt-on technology out there that a lot of people are getting into. So what's your take on that and usability in general?
1: So I I do think there's kind of two prongs to the whole usability issue. So there's certainly the usability of the products themselves. You know, are they being designed intelligently? Are they being designed for the task at hand? Do the people designing them have formal UX training? And I think back to uh, kind of my early days in the industry, one of the vendors that I worked with actually had a PhD trained usability expert. They would come and talk to clients about their philosophy and, and why they were trying to do what they were trying to do with the system. And it's it's very interesting because some of the things that designers sometimes think are you know interesting or sexy or cool looking actually can have a high cognitive load for physicians. So as they they may look cool, but they're harder to use. And it's really important to, to balance that and to understand, you know, what what is the job that's trying to be solved? And does it need to look cool or does it need to just get it done? So that's kind of the one prong is the technical piece. And I think there's certainly a lot of opportunity. But to the other comment that you said, you know, are are users getting support from their organization? You know, I still see people that don't get adequate training. Um, and interesting, I just wrote a blog piece this morning about supporting a go live and you know, the idea of doing mock go lives, for example. You know, yes, it takes up time, but You know, you have to go slow to go fast and I think if people buy in a little bit more to the training and the value that the tools will have for them. And if their organizations support them in that make sure that they have trainers that are available at the times that they want to be available, which may not be normal working hours for physicians. um, To really know how to use the tools so that they don't feel like they're just being you know thrown into the deep water when they start, And, and I think the other angle of that too is. The systems that are out there are so sophisticated now, and many of the clients that I work with, they're just using a fraction of their system. So they may be blaming the, you know, I'm gonna blame the EHR because it's frustrating. Well. That's because you're only using half of what you're supposed to use. you know you're using half of the workflow. and, and that's, that's where it gets interesting. So that partnership between the operational piece and the technical piece and the clinical piece, that really all has to, to come together. But, but again, I think the potential is huge. I'd love to see people truly optimize their EHRs. and COVID has kind of put a dent in that because nobody wanted to spend any money on anything that wasn't you know directly supporting the COVID effort. But now that that's starting to settle a little bit, you know, thank goodness, you know, maybe people will start revisiting some of those newer, you know, newer projects that they wanted to do a year and a half ago that got sidelined, that'll make all of our lives better.
0: That's a very, that's, it's interesting because if you purchased a brand new MRI scanner for a hospital and you slid it in, the people who you bought it from, GE or whomever, here it is all set up in the room. Here's the on button and you had no training. How would you ever use it? EMRs are the same way. If you don't have adequate training, you're exactly right. They're very difficult to use. And if you don't engage with them, it gets worse and worse. And I believe with the pandemic and these systems, we have seen more physician burnout, people leaving the practice of medicine. Now, we've had a little bit of the opposite effect. We've had the Dr. Fauci effect in medical school. So you know, one of the things I do on the side is I'm part of the admissions criteria screener for the University of Illinois College of Medicine. So we're getting a lot more applications because of Dr. Fauci and what he's done. So I think that's actually a positive thing for the pandemic. He's kind of risen to that. But let's talk a little bit about physician burnout. What do you think is the, the major cause right now of physicians saying, eh, I'm done. I've got to get out of here. i have got to do something else. Is it risk? Is it what they're doing? Is it the complexity now? What, what do you think it is?
1: So I I think there's a lot of dimensions to that. And, you know, risk is certainly a thing. And, you know, in all transparency, my brother sues doctors for a living. So we have some very interesting holiday dinners at our family. And, you know, there's always that you know, constant threat of you're going to make a mistake and, you know, you're going to wind up party to a lawsuit or, you know, worse than that, worse than the lawsuit, actually negatively impacting a patient. I mean, that's what we really worry about. It's not the, you know, the getting sued piece. It's the, oh, my gosh, you know, this did not go well and someone is, is suffering a consequence. Um, I think there's that piece to it. I think there's the tremendous mismatch of expectations in the United States healthcare system with the different competing uh forces so the payer tensions they want us to do it as cheaply as possible from a risk management perspective we want to do as much as possible to make sure we don't miss anything um and then we have these these constant voices that are telling us we should we should just practice self-care if we could just practice self-care and be more mindful and you know we'd all be better and and bring in the therapy dogs during the go live and that's going to make everything better um, I think COVID has been tremendous at, it, it's very interesting because some people it's made them more burned out. And I think a lot of that is the fear of the unknown and just kind of some of the hours, you know, in the urgent care business, you know, I meant went from seeing 30, 40 patients a day to 70, 80 patients a day. Um, and that was, you can either find that energizing or you can find that soul crushing. And some days it's one and some days it's the other. But I, th- I think a lot of it is just mismatch expectations and expectations and kind of, we all went into this healthcare, situation that we thought would be you know, where we were going, and, and it's it's just very different now. Interestingly, um, one of the things that the pandemic has done for me is has helped me make some additional connections with informaticists around the world. So I have a couple of folks that I speak with regularly in Australia. Um, I have folks that work in New Zealand. And I don't think we're seeing, at least among my you know, N of five people that I talk to, I don't think we're seeing those levels of burnout in systems where the expectation mismatches less. So for example, in a system that's nationalized healthcare or single payer, um, because you don't have, I mean, you have some competing priorities, but not to the level that we're seeing here in the States. So I, I think that's a factor. Um, I think always the, the expectation that of perfection that is a big factor and also the expectation that we're all gonna leverage technology. And don't get me wrong, I don't wanna knock technology. I love technology, obviously. I've spent the better part of my career facilitating it, but um, we can't lose sight of the good old fashioned touch part of healthcare and medicine. And I, I recently had a patient experience. I've been been going through some thing, things that happen to people when they reach a certain age. And I, I went, for, I had to go for a diagnostic test. And I, I really wanted to say to the the technician who was kind of being a little sassier than I would have appreciated, I, I really wanted to say to her, you may do this 50 times a day, but this is the first time I've had this done. So, you know, and even as a physician, you know, feeling like we've lost that sense of touch, you know, that it's all about throughput and meeting your metrics and, and all of these external forces versus, you know, really being able to care about the patient in front of you you know, to the, to the title of the podcast, tell me where it hurts. You know, that's where I feel it hurts a lot is we don't really have the opportunity to do the care part of healthcare. So, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things shake out and how the healthcare system system or non-system as it is here recovers after the pandemic. But I hope we all find a little way to care more, you know, not just about, you know, not just about our metrics and widgets and whatnots, but about the, the people whose lives we're actually trusted with.
0: That's a great segue into a, another question and kind of where I see the post pandemic world of healthcare going is the world of telehealth. For the first time in my lifetime, I've actually been on the receiving end and the giving end of telehealth. So helping people over the computer is a little different than when they're standing in front of you. However, I do believe that telehealth is gonna be here to stay and it's actually going to expand over time. And Medicare has provided payments for that now, kind of cleared the pathway for that. And we're seeing companies start to rise up now to do just telehealth. So I like your take on telehealth and how that all fits into healthcare IT and where that's going.
1: Yeah, telehealth I think is gonna be very interesting. And I do a little bit of of dabbling in telehealth, both in the provider side and, and also on the consulting side. And I think the technology is going to be really important to make sure that we're not just creating a new silo where people's healthcare information lives. And to your point about, you know, some of these big companies rising up that are dedicated telehealth companies, you know, how is that information getting back to a primary care physician? Does the person even have a primary care physician? Does the telehealth vendor offer primary care? I I think that's the next great thing is, you know, could we truly have primary care Telehealth, where you know someone in a complete, you know, completely other city is quarterbacking your care because maybe they're a good a good fit for you. You guys click. Um, I think that's very interesting, but we have to get the technology underpinnings with it, and I think that's going to be really important to make sure that those vendors are meeting the same standards that that other folks are meeting, so that we can have true interoperability. You know, make sure that if you have a problem list item that's documented over here, that it makes it over there and that people know what's going on with your care, because otherwise we're just gonna create another level of fragmentation and people aren't really gonna get the care that they need. Um, and I've seen that a little bit, not, not necessarily specific to telehealth, but specific with um, some of the data flow with vaccinations with COVID. So you know that's something that we have a national priority around, You know vaccinations, that is a huge thing right now. And I wanna encourage everybody to get your vaccine, it's not a big deal, technology is cool. Um, my Wi-Fi did not get any better in my house, so I'm very disappointed about that. I didn't get the 5g chip or whatever, but you know I, I feel protected, which is good. but that is a national priority and we still can't get the data to move around correctly. So some states are going through an immunization registry, some are sending it system to system. Um, one, one of my favorite bottom of the barrel states, the state of Missouri, they actually switched over their immunization registry like two weeks ago and just quit taking the legacy feed. Um, and people didn't necessarily know that was going on and that created a, you know, a huge kerfuffle. But we've got a national priority around that and we can't get that data to move well how are we handling, you know, Mrs. Jones and her chronic allergic rhinitis and, you know, Sally and her chronic strep throat, you know, to, to get that data to move. So we have a lot of challenges in, in the U.S., you know, the, the national patient identifier issue that no one has been willing to tackle for the last two decades um, or has deliberately blocked. You know, we have to be able to identify those patients to move their data around to be able to allow them to receive quality care in the different venues. So. Um, A lot of work to be done. It's an exciting time to be a clinical informaticist for sure, but gee, it seems like it should be easier. So so that's another place where it hurts.
0: Well, I, I absolutely agree. And it's a great segue into the whole concept of interoperability. One thing the pandemic to me has risen up in healthcare IT is the lack of interoperability. So who got a shot? What shot did they get? When did they get it? Simple things, simple things.
1: <laughs> I mean, you, you got me going now. So so here's what's going on in my city. So I live in one of the fair states that did not do a, a truly coordinated situation with the vaccine. So basically they told every patient, sign up with all the health systems and somebody will notify you. So my parents, case in point, they signed up with three different health systems, plus the county, plus another county in which one of them works. And ultimately, they ended up getting vaccines, but there's no way for the count for these various entities, the county and the other health systems. There's no way for them to know that my parents already got a vaccine somewhere else, so they're still outstanding as a quote needed vaccine in four different systems. Um, so there's really no, we don't really know how vaccinated we are, you know, compared to who wants it, because they look on 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 paper they look like five people who want a vaccine when it's really just done. Um, and there's really no, no way to put that together because we had this kind of really fragmented approach at it. You know, other states that agreed to do it through their local public health agencies and you can only sign up in one place, you know, at least they have a bead on it. You know, we, we keep buying hundreds of millions of doses, but we don't really know what the true need really is, who really wants it, who's going to get it. And I just I just find that very interesting because you're trying to follow the data, but the data is all over the place. And then finally the health systems came out and somebody asked the question, You know, as people are getting vaccines, should they call? Should they come off the list? One health system said, don't call us because your phone call keeps us from scheduling somebody else, just ignore the emails. One health system said, well, we'll send you an email with an opt-out button and just click the opt-out button. And then the other one said, no, please call us and tell us that you've already received your vaccine. So, you know, and that's just in one, you know, one metropolitan area of a couple million people. There's so much data out there and we don't even know, we don't even know what's going on. So I I would love to solve that problem. You know, I talked to the state health commissioners and, you know, I would love to get the IT contract on that. You know, let's figure out who really in the state wants one and let's get them to the right place. But uh, it's just harder than it seems it should be.
0: Well, and then get it to a central location so we know in the nation, are we going to reach herd immunity with 80% vaccinated or whatever the experts tell us that's going to happen? We don't know that for sure. Same thing happened here in my state, exactly what you described. Um, Some states have handled this really well, some states haven't. But it really does raise the question of true interoperability because we can't even tell who got vaccinated, how in the world are we going to get a complete medication list, a complete problem list that's been vetted by somebody somewhere transmitted from physician to physician? And we wonder when that's going to happen. The nation needs to start settling on standards and they need to start settling on the pathway they want it to go. And until that happens, uh, I don't see a whole lot of incremental progress in the interoperability world. And COVID-19, in my mind, just just iced that cake. Absolutely. Everybody's on their own game. Thank you very much and we're running all over the place. So that's that's a very, very good, very good analysis. So let's switch gears a little bit. Out in the industry right now, I'm sure you've seen this, there's all this um, hype, and I call it hype, of artificial intelligence, natural language processing, the magic that will happen if you stick a microphone in an exam room, And some computer somewhere deciphers every conversation that goes on in that exam room and produces medical information in the form of a note or whatever. I like your take on that because I I see a lot of talk, but I also see a lot of hype, meaning it just isn't the way to go. And it also doesn't negate the fact that as a clinician, I want to read my note. I want to know what I said. I want to know what's going to go into a legal medical record. Not just everybody's M's, O's, that's us, and all the rest of it. So I like your take on that.
1: Yeah, that's certainly something that I've been following pretty closely. You know, ever since uh, HIMS 19, when Nuance uh, really made a big deal out of their ambient experience product that they've been refining over the last couple of years. And I've been following that as it's been evolving. And I, I think there's a couple of challenges. There's the challenge between some clinicians really will want everything to be exactly reflected without editing you know if you are in a high stakes uh profession and you you want to document a consent conversation you know you may want to make sure that everything is spelled out you know in in gory gory detail versus you know a lot of us do you know what we might consider small talk but those are you know those are the moments that bond us with the patient but we certainly don't need a you know a documentation in the note that you know asked patient about her children and how they're doing in college, you know, etc. I think there's a fine line in figuring out how to fine tune that and also the different clinician mannerisms make that very difficult as far as figuring out, you know, who wants what and, and how you train that. But the one thing that I've noticed across the industry is, is the initial pilots they tend to choose for these are uh, sp- subspecialties in which the visits tend to be kind of repetitive. So, One of the demos that gets used by multiple vendors is like a like an arthritis visit a knee arthritis visit or an ankle sprain visit or something like that and that really doesn't reflect the true complexity of what a lot of us are dealing with you know some of the opportunities in primary care and and even though i've been in the er trenches for you know the better part of a decade i originally trained in family medicine and some of those conversations are all over the place and you know bouncing from problem to problem you know patients especially the the patients that are more advanced in age may have six or eight or ten problems that you're covering and you're not really addressing you know when they're when you're talking about their weight that is goes to their diabetes and their hyperlipidemia and their hypertension and everything else you know how do you get a system that's smart enough when it puts that plan together to know that when you were having the conversation about weight that that wasn't just about the obesity diagnosis, that it also goes to support all the other diagnoses that weight is a contributing factor to. So, you know, I've thrown this out there in the blog a couple of times, and, and none of the vendors has picked up, on the, the, picked up the gauntlet, but I would love to go see it in person in an actual primary care office with actual primary care patients and see how well the systems can currently handle that and see what that looks like because I'm still a little bit skeptical. I mean, I think it could do very well for problem focused visits, but when you really get into some of these complex visits that, you know, you're you're bouncing all around with different topics and especially different psychosocial issues and the end of life conversations that permeate, you know, the overall, you know, discussion of the actual medical issues um, I, I think it's a I think it's a challenge. Maybe we'll get there. You know, I, I have uh, I'm a little bit of a Star Trek nerd. I hope that, you know, maybe someday we'll get there and, you know, everything will be consolidated to, you know, one page on a on a tablet that's handed from person to person. But I, I think we've got a ways to go. Um, interestingly, the, the interview recently with uh, Judy Faulkner at Epic, you know, she said she thought that Epic was at least a couple years out before being able to have it embedded. And I really, you know, I really appreciate her honesty and transparency on that. Um, one thing that drives me crazy in the industry is the vaporware and the number of companies that sell stuff that actually either doesn't exist or exists, but doesn't work right. So, I, you know, the, the, as a clinician, I think the transparency is very respectful um, because I, we don't want to be snowed. You know, we need to know if it's going to work and what it's going to do and and not have to figure it out after we bought it, that it's, you know, it's not what we thought we were getting into.
0: Yeah. One of the problems I've had with colleagues is you get really one shot. And if they put something in and it doesn't work as advertised, sometimes it just gets turned off and that's it. You're done. Physicians are reluctant to give people second, third, fifth chances when it comes to how they work, where they work and how technology adapts to what they do, which, which is a big issue right now. So do you see technology where do you see technology going as far as that's concerned? Do you still think there's going to be, I'll call point and click, systems with templates and things like that? uh, Or is it going to go pure NLP? Let's figure it out on the backside. Or you see a, a mix of that.
1: So I I do think at least in the the short term, it's going to need to be a hybrid. You know, you look at just kind of the the upfront investment that needs to happen for, you know, like an an, an LP system, you know, some of those uh, some of those systems, you know, it's like 16 microphones in the room and, you know, you got to have, you know, an actual technology infrastructure investment as well as, you know, the software and the training and everything else. Um, The reality is, is sometimes people are just faster with a templated system that is configured or customized to them so i kind of think about the you know the um nlp systems as as being like a digital scribe And, and i've worked with scribes on and on on and off for the last decade and there's good scribes and there's bad scribes and there's scribes that understand your clinical intent and scribes that don't and some of them produce beautiful notes and some of them don't and you know, that's the challenge of thinking that we can have a, you know, a system that can truly learn my intent and what I want in the note um, versus I know what I want in my note and I'm pretty fast and I can type 80 words a minute. So, you know, where where is that balance and what is more stressful to the clinician? I think there will be some breakdown by specialties. I do think some subspecialties lend themselves to the NLP process more easily at the point of care than others do. Um, just due to the reproducible nature of their visits and and things like that. You know, I, I have some friends that are in super duper subspecialties that, you know, essentially a good friend of mine treats like five diagnoses. And so, you know, that could work really well for there. One thing I don't want do, to kind to of throw out with the bathwater with NLP is I think there's other really great uses of NLP that are more robust and more formulated. So not necessarily trying to process that language at the point of care, but using it Kind of sort of at the point of care and sort of at the back end to try and pick up things that could help support coding and billing that could help support HCC coding, for example, pick up things that the clinicians may miss and kind of point out to them that, um, hey, you covered this during the visit, but you just didn't document it. Um, We saw your documentation of it, but you didn't have the diagnosis code. And and that works very well with some of the data that we've seen from the professional organizations, like the American Academy of Family Physicians had some data from a couple of years ago that, you know, the average family physician treats like 5.2 problems per visit, but only documents like two point something. So, you know, if if we can use those things, those are a little more predictable um, just to gather those problems. But I think really reflecting the note, I I think it's going to be a hybrid approach for a while. but. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I think there's a lot of smart people out there working on the problem. The question is, how profitable is it going to be and mm-hmm. how skeptical are end users going to be? And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of what keeps us on our toes in the industry.
0: Yes, it does. Absolutely. Well, I have one final question for you. Given all you know and your very broad view of healthcare IT as a whole, if you could wave your magic wand and fix one thing tomorrow, what would that be?
1: Oh, you know, there, there's so many choices there. Um, honestly, I mean, in this, depending on how popular you think it is or don't think it is, or the privacy implications or, or this, that, and the other thing. Honestly, I think one thing that is truly hobbling us in the U.S. is the lack of a, of a unique patient identifier. You know, if we could fix that, if we could start putting the underpinnings to have a true master patient index, that we could actually link people to reliably. Um, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but I think it could be a lot better than what we have currently. And that could start to be the framework to pull all these disparate systems together and start identifying that data um, to one individual. I mean, I, I have a good friend that lives in Taiwan and, and we talk a lot about the, the health system and just how everything is linked to the national health ID card and, you know, resources and, and everything. And it just seems like, they have a whole lot less problems than we do <laughs> from a data matching standpoint so you know i'll take that one you know but again it's not sexy you know it, it's not you know we're going to fix the patient experience it's not you know we're going to fix the clinical experience it's that that under the covers deep data stuff that you know you don't talk about it at cocktail parties or happy hours but you know for some of us you look at the number of problems that that fixing that could solve um and and i'll take that as my first one
0: okay <laughs> I, would, I, I was thinking interoperability, but your choice would actually go a long way to fix interoperability, to be able to identify Jay Anders as Jay Anders, wherever I happen to be. Well, we're about out of time. I'd like to thank you so much, Dr. Jane, for being our inaugural guest on our new Tell Me Where It Hurts. And we'll uh, see you at HIMSS, maybe.
1: <laughs> Great. I hope to see you there, too. Uh, if you're looking to learn more about healthcare IT, you can find me blogging over at HISTalk. Uh, it is America's trusted source for IT news and opinion. And you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Jane, J-A-Y-N-E, Talk M-D.
0: That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Metacomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MediCompSys or myself at MediCompDoc or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.